good morning. Welcome to, uh, to our family gathering for Cultivate. Uh, my name is Jay. We call this our family gathering. I say this every week because we believe that we're the church and that church isn't a building or a, uh, a time slot, a gathering, um, but it's a people. And so uh, we're the people of God because of what Jesus has done for us. So we gather regularly to enjoy all of that, to be equipped uh, for all the things that God has for us to do in the world, uh, and to just rejoice that we, we get to enjoy a relationship with God and to celebrate Him and all that He's done for us. So, um, so welcome to that. We have, uh, we've been going through a series called Reasonable Doubt uh, over the last several weeks. Um, we've only got two weeks left. Uh, in this series, but it's basically a series on um, some of the, the difficult questions that our culture has with the Christian faith, with Christianity, and with the church. And so we're going to get to the church part for the next couple weeks. But uh, what we're doing is, is essentially saying uh, there, there are some major questions out there that people have when it comes to faith. And, uh, and some of those doubts that they have, many of those doubts they have, at least from their perspective, are quite reasonable. Uh, and so how do we address many of those doubts and objections uh, to Christianity in a way that is humble, uh, but, but yet we believe is, is in accordance with what, the, what Christianity teaches and what the Bible teaches? So that's kind of what we're doing through this series. We're hoping to, to be able to speak to those who don't yet believe, uh, as well as to those who do, in, in, in a way that hopefully equips you uh, to have some fruitful conversations with people where you get to demonstrate both the, the truth of the gospel, but also the love of Christ. That's kind of what we're doing through this. So last week, if you remember, we talked about kind of this, the, the idea that Christianity is a straitjacket. It, it reduces freedom. It, it constrains you. Everybody has to think and act the same way. And I hope we did a, a reasonable job at trying to debunk that, uh, that idea. This week, we're, we're beginning to move into the church. Um, and so the objection... Uh, kind of goes like this. Isn't the church responsible for injustice in the world? Isn't it, I mean, hasn't it done some incredibly bad, uh, sometimes awful things? And it's funny because I, originally I was going to package kind of all the doubts about the church into one week. And what I found as I started to do that is that there were far too many to be contained into one week. Um, and so we're taking this week and next week to kind of talk through those things. So this week is injustice. Next week's intolerance. So uh, if, if you really don't like the church, then maybe this is a good time for you to be here. But um, the objection kind of goes like this. My problem isn't really with the Bible. It's not with truth in general. It isn't uh, with suffering in the world or even the concept of hell. My problem is with the church. Uh, the church, for a long time, has had a history of oppression. People acting in the name of Jesus have done all kinds of horrible things to other human beings as a result of their faith. So, how can I believe in God if belief has led those who believe to such injustice, particularly for the poor and for the marginalized? Um, it's, it's a pretty serious uh, objection to Christianity. And here's the thing. With a lot of these other objections, we can start out by saying it's just not true. And with this one, unfortunately, we have to kind of own up to the fact that historically speaking, it's absolutely dead on. There, there are many things in the history of the church which we who, who are part of the church would say we're not so proud of our history in, in many ways. And many of the things that have been done in Jesus' name uh, we would agree are oppressive or even dehumanizing. 
And so we kind of have to own up to that on the front end, but also say, how do we respond in light of the fact that sometimes that can be true? Well, um, we're going to look at a specific passage that talks about that. We're actually going to um, use the Bibles if you have them, you want to read along, because we're going to be in one particular section, and it's on page 837. But in the second chapter of the letter that James writes uh, to a, a church, he starts to address an issue which rises up in the middle of the church that has to do with injustice and oppression because they're, they're doing something that James is calling them out on and saying this is, not in light, this is not in line with the truth of what you guys claim to believe. And so we need to talk about it a little bit. And what was happening was that... that when they were gathering together, um, they were reserving certain seats of honor for those who had greater status and greater wealth. And so in their culture, the, the seats of honor would have been at the feet of whoever is teaching. So it would have been right down here in front. That is completely the opposite today. And so the seats of honor are the very, very back row. Right? Because those are the seats that everybody clamors for. When they, when they come to a church. I don't know why that is, but that's just you know, what happens on a Sunday morning. So you guys in the back, consider yourselves in the seats of honor. Um, but I'm not necessarily saying that that's true. I'm just saying you probably consider yourselves that way, being that you're in the back. Um, but so, so we have to look at, at what he says to address this particular issue. And here's, here's what he tells them. He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Listen, this is in verse 5. My dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of Him uh, of him to, to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So James, you may not know this, is the half-brother of Jesus and he is leading a community of faith. And he's calling out this community of believers for favoring the rich. And so apparently the issue of the church falling into injustice isn't a new concept. Okay? So what does he have to say to both the church, maybe even to those who are doubting uh, the, the claims of Christianity about this whole idea? What does he say to the church as it's in the act of marginalizing people and acting unjustly. Well, in a, in a broad sense, okay, we're just going to kind of cover this in, in broad terms. He says essentially two things, all right? The first thing he says is that God chooses the poor. 
God chooses the poor. And the second thing, which is probably the more radical one, is that if you were to summarize everything that he says, he's, he's basically saying, and those who really believe in God, true believers, true pe- who have been converted by this God who chooses the poor, do the same out of their faith. So God chooses the poor, and those who believe in Him inevitably do the same. So let's look at the first of those two things. The first thing that James says in retaliation to those who are showing favoritism is this. He says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? Now, what is he saying there? I mean, does God only choose the poor? I mean, are are the poor only part of the church? Is he saying that, that they're the only ones to inherit the kingdom? Well, not really, because if you rewind a little bit and you look at chapter 1, the first, first he says this, the brother in humble circumstances, that's like a polite way of saying poor, um, ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. So there are both rich and poor within the church. He speaks to both of them equally. So what does it mean then that God chooses the poor? But James is, I think, he's just essentially stating a fact of history that if you look at the vast majority of the population of the church throughout history, what you'll find is that most of the people that are in the church throughout history are of low standing in the world. They're of low standing. Um, Paul essentially says the same thing when he's talking to a church in another city called Corinth, and he says to them, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him, that's the Father, that you're in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Most of the people uh, who come to faith, at least in Paul's day, and I would would say even throughout history, were of lower economic status. You say, why is that? I mean, why could that possibly be the case? Well, one reason is, I mean, from a theological standpoint, that God particularly in His plan chooses those who don't have much to offer the world so that in their salvation they would have to inevitably give credit to God for their salvation. In other words, uh, He would choose people who particularly would boast in Him. Not themselves, not their own goodness, not their wealth, not their their status, any of those things, they would say, the reason I've come to faith is because God chose me to be His. So, essentially, if you were to put those two together, Paul and James, what they're saying is is that the Gospel both empowers and attracts the poor. It is both empowering and attractive to the poor. Now, why would the Gospel be empowering to the poor? Think about this. I mean, think about what the Gospel tells you. Okay, Think about what it says to you. It says, the Lord of the universe, the one who made the stars, loves you 
and values you, sees you as something of infinite worth. So much so that He came in the form of His Son and He died for you. Not only that, but He put His Spirit in you and He gives you power and gifts so that you'd become His agents of reconciliation in the world. In other words, you're on a mission. And someday, one day, God is going to come back again in, by Himself and He's going to put everything right again. He's going to set the whole world straight. And justice and mercy and grace will, will be established in every corner of the world. And that's pretty amazing, right? God has saved you from your lowly position. He is saving you day by day and using you, empowering you. And one day He will set everything straight, all the things straight that you see that are, are crooked and broken in the world. Now compare that to what a secular worldview would say to, to someone. Um, you're here essentially by accident. And at best, you're like a really complex organism. I mean, you've got all kinds of chemicals going on in you, and they're all like bubbling and jiving together with, with, with one another. And, and boom, life created. And you're in a series of, of accidents that have happened to bring you to where you are. And so your only contribution to society is what you can give back to it. In other words, it's how strong you can be so that you're not the weak one to get trampled under the foot of history. Which one of those messages is more powering to those who are disadvantaged? It doesn't take you know, a, a lot of thought to, to see it's the first one and not the second, right? The, the, the Gospel is empowering to those without status and wealth. It gives them affirmation in like this cosmic sense of dignity, does it not? The Gospel empowers the poor. But at the same time, the Gospel is attractive to the poor. Um, when Jesus was uh, around on, on earth and he was talking to people, um, he, he spent a lot, a lot of time talking to those who were kind of the religious and moral authorities of his day. And do you know what he often said to them? He said, you who claim to have your act together and, and that life is good for you and you're kind of a, an upstanding person and, and all those things, the pimps and the prostitutes get into my kingdom before you do. Um, how was that received? <laughs> not well, you know? N not real well. In other words, th they get in before you who trust in your own righteousness and your own good deeds. Now, how could this be the case? Well, I mean, think of what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. Alright, we've talked about that a number of times. And what Jesus always says is that sin can manifest itself in one of two ways every time. The, the first way is, and, and, and rebellion is always trying to get control of your life, right? It's always trying to define who you are apart from God and His presence in your life. Trying to discredit what He says to be true and, and, and who He is. Distrusting Him in every way. Now, you can either do all those things by breaking all the rules, right? I'm, I'm going to rebel against you. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to pursue all the things that gratify me in every single way. You can do all that, break all the rules, and rebel against God. What's the second way that you can rebel against God? We've talked about this a number of times. What's the second way? You can give an answer. Live independently? 
end. In a sense, you, you can rebel against God by not just breaking all of the rules. You can rebel against God by keeping all of the rules, can't you? Because in a sense, what you're saying is, I, I'm keeping every single rule, and in keeping every rule, I have defined my own goodness by my own works. I, I, in a sense, I've said to God, I don't need you because I've done such a good job myself. I've kept all the laws, I've kept all the rules, and because of that, uh, God, you must accept me because I've been so good. You have to let me in. You have to bring me in. You have to bless me. You have to answer my prayers. All of those things. He has no choice but to do those things, right? So the first, the, the first way, when you're breaking all the rules, you kind of make yourself an addict and an outcast of the world, right? Um, you, you get rejected by the world. But the second way will make you an upstanding citizen. It'll make you respected among all your peers. I mean, look at this person. He's got it all together. He follows all the rules. He is a success in every way. He has his best life now. Right? But in both cases, you're rebelling against God and you're a slave to your own self-centeredness. Now, go to the person who's breaking all the rules. Okay? The, the one who has tried it all. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They've done everything. You go to that person and you say to them, you are a mess. You're in need of a Savior. I mean, can't you see? Your life is an utter ruin. You've been rebelling against God, but the good news is God has come to save you. Will you accept that? What, what might their answer be? You know what? Maybe you're right. Now, go to the person, the, the, the second one, the upstanding citizen, the one who's been keeping all the rules, the one who loves morality, the one that, that has it all together, and you tell them you need God because you're a spiritual bankrupt person. And what's the answer you get from them? Uh, yeah, you're disregarded at least, but it, probably they would say something like, how dare you? How dare you? Tell me that. You, I've been doing stuff for God all my life. Every time the church doors are open, I'm there. I, I mean, I've got the record. Don't tell me that I don't have the record. Don't tell me that I need God because I've got my act together. I've been a Christian for a long time. What do you mean I need saving? That's why when you tell, I mean, just thinking of our context, when you tell the people around Cherry Hill and Voorhees, the middle and upper class people. You know what? Just be a good person. Be generous now and then. If you're good, then God will bless you and He'll accept you. Everything will be fine. I mean, go to church every once in a while and, and do good things to others. And they'll say, hey, that sounds great. Where do I sign up? But when you tell them the Gospel, that you are a sinner who can never save yourselves, that you're spiritually bankrupt and even your good deeds are just self-centered attempts to keep yourself away from God and you need a Savior who comes to forgive you of all of that and pays the price of your rebellion. They go, you are nuts. You're nuts, right? But when the poor hear that, they say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. See, the Gospel is always more compelling to people who understand their own inadequacy. Always. They see it more clearly than everyone else. 
and they see God's activity to come and to rescue them as more precious than anyone else. The question I would ask is, do you? Do you see it in yourself? See, God chooses the poor. The gospel Christianity, you may not know this, is the faith of choice for the poor and marginalized around the world. It always has been. He delights to empower the poor and, and, and those who the world rejects. And that's why if you look around the world, it, everywhere that, there, that there's poverty happening in the world, Christianity is growing. South America, Africa, um, the, the rural parts of China, exploding in Christianity. And none of those places, by and large, are the center of power and wealth. So, okay, so you might say, well, that's great. God chooses the poor. That's all fine and good. It's very inspiring. Thank you, Pastor, uh, for those great words. Um, but it doesn't get the church off the hook. It, it doesn't uh, excuse in any way what the church has done. What, what do you have to say for those who have actually committed these things? And I would say you're right. So that gives us to the second point. God chooses the poor, and those who really believe in Him do the same. Every true believer in God does the same. The truth is the church does have a terrible track record when it comes to oppression. You, just, you don't have to think long. You don't have to search Wikipedia for very long. Um, it, it, it's out there. Crusades, Inquisition, African slave trade, civil rights. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. That's just the surface level, right? But there's no defending what people have done often in the name of Jesus as a in claims that they're acting out of their faith. And so as the church, our only response should be one of repentance, actually, uh, on their behalf, to ask the world for forgiveness uh, for those things. But the argument that people often say when they see all these things, they interpret them this way, and they say, well, because Christians have acted this way, because they've done these things, you shouldn't believe the beliefs of Christianity as a result. But here's the thing. If, if the Christian God chooses the poor, then shouldn't we expect that those who truly have their faith in Him would begin to act in accordance with the person that they believe? And if you read Hebrews 12, it says to, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, meaning the one who wrote our faith, and the perfecter, the one who does it perfectly on our behalf. So if you're fixing your eyes on Him, as Hebrews says, you should become like the one you're looking at. You should become like that person. Um, and that's essentially what James says and what he means when he says this in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not real faith. So here, here's the thing that I need to qualify this with. Because if you've been around at Cultivate for any length of period of time, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, well, don't we always teach and, and tell people that it's the love of God, it's the grace of God, it's faith in what He's done that saves us, not our own works, not our own deeds? I mean, we, we're constantly talking about that. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Him alone for your salvation. Isn't that the opposite then of grace if faith without action is dead? I love the way that Martin Luther puts it. He's a great reformer. Um, when he was working through the book of James, he, he says this, Christians are, 
are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. They're, they're saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. And what he's saying is, faith when it's really in Christ will not remain alone, but manifests itself by the way that we live. And so good works are never a means of salvation, but they're always a sign of salvation. They're always a sign. In the Gospel, you stop trying to save yourself. And you receive what Jesus has done for you. But how do you know that you're in a relationship with this God who saves? How do you know? What's the litmus test? How do you know that you're resting in His works? James says it's your actions, which tell you every time. They're a dead giveaway. If this were a poker match, we'd know what cards you're holding every single time. Because you have a terrible poker face, is what he's saying. Right? Look at your works. Look at the way that you live. That's going to show you whether or not your faith is a living one or a dead one. So here's the question I want to ask. What kind of actions? I mean, what are we supposed to look at then that's an indication of whether our faith is alive or not? I mean, is it any actions? Is it like... Is it going to church? Is it praying? Is it reading your Bible? Um, is it fasting? Is it giving? Is it? I mean, what kinds of works is it? We have to read the verses between the ones that we just read. We just read 14 and 17. In order to understand what it means to have faith that's living, you need to look at verses 15 and 16, the ones in the center. So look at the example he gives. He says this, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing for his physical needs, what good is it? You hear what he's saying? What's the example he's giving? What's that? In this particular one, it's, it's feeding those who don't have food, right? So what is the action that he's talking about? What's the sign that a person truly understands that they're a sinner saved by grace? The answer is they care for the poor. That's how you know, according to James. If you don't, James says, you may believe in God, you may think Jesus is a great God, you may even claim that He's God. You, you, may, you may be enamored with Him. You may spend all your time praying to Him. You may give at church. You may do all kinds of wonderful things. But you may not have a real relationship with Him. That's pretty stark, right? That's bold that He would say something like that. It's a pretty radical statement. But it gets even worse. <laughs> it gets even worse. Because if you look even just the verses before that, verse 13... He says this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law which gives freedom. Remember we talked about that last week, that that the truth will set you free. Because judgment, and this is where it gets radical, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So, that really troubles me. But you have to understand what the, the word mercy means. In our culture, when we talk about mercy, mercy is kind of the, the not giving somebody what they deserve, right? It's, it's, st- it's kind of staying your hand when you could give judgment, right? That, that tends to be what 
what mercy means to us. But in the Bible, here's what mercy means. Mercy means to meet the physical needs of those who are poor. It means to meet the needs. Now, I'll give you a, a good example of that. Um, if you've ever heard or read the, the parable that Jesus gives about the Good Samaritan, um, he says that there are a number of people that pass by this guy on the road. He's laying there half dead. And, and he needs medical attention. He needs food. He needs shelter. He needs help. And there are people, religious good people, who pass by him and do nothing for his physical needs. They essentially let him stay there on the side of the road, as if they were to, to stop and say a prayer of blessing over him and then keep going. But then there's a Samaritan who was not considered good by any stretch of the imagination in Jesus' day. And he's the one who stops at the side of the road. And what does he do? He cares for him. He cares for him, right? He takes him in. He picks him up off the ground. He, he brings him to the, the, the nearest place where they can shelter him. And he pays for his, his medical attention and his food, all of his needs are cared for. And what does Jesus say? The, the, the one, the, the blessed person, the one who understands the kingdom, the one who gets God, the one who really believes is who? It's the Samaritan, but what does he call him? He says, the one who does mercy. See, mercy is meeting the physical needs of the poor. It is meeting the needs of those who are marginalized. And so what James is saying here is everyone will be judged by God one day. And the sign that you're a real believer is that you live your life as one poured out in service to the poor and to the marginalized. So, um, does that mean then that regardless of your Christian beliefs, that those who care for the poor are the ones that are going to be judged well? Like, is it the social workers that are getting to heaven? <laughs> no, because re remember, these, aren't, these works aren't a means of your salvation. It's not like you can care for the poor enough and go on enough missions trips and say, here, God, because essentially it's doing the same thing, right? It's, it's just switching which rules that you're keeping so that you can impress God with your works. So it's not as if you can say, okay, well, I've done a great job caring for the poor God. You need to let me in. He's going to say, no, I'm sorry. You still didn't know my son. See, there aren't a, a means of your salvation. There, you don't get into a relationship with God by caring for the poor. But unless you care for those who are less off, you have to question whether or not you have a relationship with this God who cares for the the only way that you know that you have faith that's not dead, according to James, is that you become like the God you believe. And I don't know if you realize this, but there are over 2,000 instances in the Bible where God says, I care for the poor. It's everywhere. I mean, you can't read your Bible from cover to cover and go, well, I guess God doesn't really care about the poor. You just can't come to that conclusion. Over 2,000 times he said, he says, I care for the poor. You care for the poor. I mean, he mentions it everywhere. You know, pick up those who are marginalized and stand on their side. Advocate for them. Do everything that you can. Pour your life out to them. And not only that, but those who are in Christ. Here's, here's the other thing I would say. And the other reason why caring for the poor is, is uh, important is because those who are in Christ understand something fundamental about their own nature. Remember what James said in, in chapter 1. He says this, 
The brother in humble circumstances, the one who's poor, ought to take pride in his high position. But the one uh, who is rich should take pride in his low position. I mean, that seems like an oxymoron, right? How can those who are poor have a high position and those who are rich have a low position? Think about it this way, though. If you're not saved by what you do, but what Jesus has done for you, then you are both, at the very same time, a sinner who is deserving of absolute condemnation and, at the very same time, a son or daughter who is accepted and loved by the Father. You're both, right? At the very same time. So if you're poor and you've been told all your life by everyone in society that you're a complete and utter failure, when you become a Christian for the first time, what happens to you? You have an incredibly high position, right? All of a sudden, you're a son or daughter of the king. In fact, what, what, what the Bible says about you is that you are a firstborn. You are, you are a co-heir with Christ. Do you know what Christ has? The infinite love of the Father. Eternity with Him. All the riches of heaven that come along with it. Every spiritual blessing that, that comes along with knowing God is all contained in Jesus. And when you become a Christian and you give your life to this Jesus, what happens to you? You get the family bank account. Right? All of that stuff is all credited onto you. So in fact, you're the richest person who ever lived. Because your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You're rich beyond your wildest imagination. You're a firstborn son. You have a high position in him for the very first time. You're not lowly anymore. You have worth and value because of what he's done for you. But if you're rich, including those, I would say, in Western middle class culture, because those, those that are around us are essentially the 1% of the world. And, and you've worked hard all your life and you've achieved in life and you've gotten your dreams and, and you've gone after everything and the world has said to you, you're a success in every way. And for the first time, you have a lowly position, do you not? You have the lowest position that you've ever had before. Because essentially what the Bible says to you is you're a rebel. You're a self-righteous, self-centered person deserving of condemnation. You're all these things and more. Your worst imaginations are all true about you. Spiritually, you're just as bankrupt, bankrupt as the physically poor person who doesn't have a dime to their name. And the Lord of the universe, who understands how broken you are far better than you do, came down and he saved you. You see that? Those who are poor have a high position for the very first time, and those who are rich suddenly have a very low position. Your faith in Christ is the great equalizer because we're all children before God. So if you believe the Gospel, um, it has to transform your identity. It has to. It has to work itself out in the way that you live. And so if you're in this, the, the, the side of things where you're in this high position being brought low, if you continue to hoard all your stuff as though it belongs to you and not God, if you continue to use your home as a barrier to the world rather than an environment to love those who are far from God and be hospitable to them, if you use all your money for yourself 
If you never give your time to anyone but the people who can give back to you or those who are just like you, then your identity has not been changed by the Gospel. It has not. You may say that you have faith, but that faith is probably dead. It's not real faith. And it's not faith that understands that you're a sinner that's saved by grace. Do you see the connection that he's making between these two things? There's no escaping it. That the heart of the Gospel is a God who, who has done for you in spite of the way that you live. And if you get that, then you'll treat all races with dignity. You'll get in, involved in the lives of people who, who are less off than you are. You'll make a relationship with those people. And that's, I think, the real test of this. We can, we can claim to do good things or, or say that good things are being done in the name of Jesus, and so I, maybe I'll even give my money to those things. But is that the way that God dealt with our lowly position? Did God write a check from heaven and say, here you go, everything that you need, go and be well? Or did he come down and take the lowliest position that there was, being born in a feeding trough in a backwater town, outside of all the centers of power, and say, I'm going to go and live among you. You who are spiritually poor, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to make a relationship with you. That's what he did, right? So we can't say, okay, well, work's being done. We have a food pantry, and therefore, you know, we're taken care of. Check us off the list. We care about the poor. I would ask you in return, who is it that you know who's poor? Who do you live among who is marginalized? And what does your life in relationship to them look like? See, the gospel always creates a relationship, and that, that relationship always brings together people of different races and backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic status. It brings them all around the table and says, all of us have value and worth, therefore we all are, are, are welcome here. And that's the reason that why we can say this to the skeptic, that those who've oppressed the poor and worked to marginalize people may have done those things in the name of Christianity. But they have never done them as a product of Christianity. Because if they really believed what they claimed to believe, if they really looked at this man who dies on the, the cross in, in utter injustice and gives his life for the oppressed and the poor, preaches good news to them and says, you're of value. If you look at this person, you cannot act any other way but the same. And to do otherwise is to not believe who he is and what he's done for you. So if you say, I, I could never believe in Christianity because of how it's treated the poor, then you've never asked the poor how it is that they believe in Christianity. You've never asked them. Because from the inside of poverty... The Gospel is the best news that there is. It's the best news. It's empowering and attractive in ways that are difficult for those who are rich to understand. But at the same time, reading James, it should cause all of us, if we're part of the church, to say, um, do we really believe this Jesus? Do we really know Him? It, it should cause us to take a serious look at our lives and say, are we doing mercy as an extension of our identity in Him? 
We can't get out from under this. And that's why I think it's a beautiful statement when Tim Keller says this about James. He says, what James says about the rich and the poor, it knocks the skeptic off his feet, but it knocks the Christian down to his knees. It should, right? In other words, it should cut us to the heart and make us ask the question, why don't I show mercy in a way that God's calling me to do so? I believe in the Gospel, but I'm, maybe I'm not living the way that James says that I should. And here's the reason why I think we don't. When he started out this section, he, he says this, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. As believers in our glorious Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. In other words, people who see Jesus as the most glorious one, they won't show favoritism. You know what favoritism is? Favoritism is to value the outward appearance of someone more than the inner person. It's to see somebody for what they have on the outside. So it may be their wealth, their status, their power, their beauty, and you compare one person's exterior to another person's exterior, and you say, I'm going to gravitate towards the one with the higher standard. That's what it means. So remember the, uh, the issue that James is addressing here when he's talking about this. He's saying the church is reserving seats of honor for those who are of higher status. Those whose outward exterior appearance is more lovely than others. One of the things I want to remind you of, though, and so, so we, could, we could say, okay, as an application for our church, um, that means that anybody that comes to a Sunday gathering uh, should not be treated as anybody else would be treated. They should be given dignity and respect as, as someone who uh, the Father loves and sends His Son for. And I would say that is a good and true application. But it's not the one that James is making. Um, remember at the very beginning when I started this talk, I said we are the church, Right? The church is not a building or a time slot. It is a people, right? Um, in James' day, the people of God called the church. They didn't have fancy buildings with steeples on top of them and parking lots on four acres of ground. You know what they had? They had homes. They had homes. And they would gather in those homes as the people of God for probably a lot more than two hours on a Sunday morning. Um, they would share their lives with people. And so what they were doing in a sense is saying, those who have status and wealth and power, you are welcome into my home. I will give you a seat at my table. You can raid my fridge. Take the best bottle of wine. Have it all. Here's where the glasses are. You know, Here's the bathroom. Uh, make yourself at home. But those who are poor, you guys have to stay on the front porch. You do not have access to my fridge because you will raid it because you don't have your own. You will take advantage of me. Um, you will unclean my house. You'll make it dirty. You'll track stuff in that I don't want to be in. Uh, you'll make a mess of things in ways that I, I'm not particularly you know, attracted to. Um, You'll, you'll, you'll take the best stuff because that's probably what you'll do. 
I mean, all, all those things. You see why James is saying, don't show favoritism. He's saying to them, in a sense, um, welcome everyone into your home and give them all a place of honor because that is exactly what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You who he created for this world to live among it, to shepherd it on his behalf, to, to give leadership and care over all living things in such a way that reflects who God is. We, we, we come, you know, God creates us and puts us in the earth and then what do we do? We stink up his house. You know? We raid his fridge of all the best things to eat and we leave nothing for those who are disadvantaged. The, the powerful nations of the world, they, 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 they come in and they, they take a tractor to everything that's good in the lowly parts of the world and say, we're going to extract every good thing and consume it. And we're going to leave you with nothing, right? Have we not done that? We've made a mess of God's house. We really have. And, and so, what? those of you who know the story, what has been God's response to that? Does he kick his kids out of the house? What does he do? He comes and he cleans up our mess. He comes and he scrubs the floors after we've done a mess on them. He comes and he cleans up after us, does he not? The, the, the master of the house gets on the floor... He, he puts on a towel and he says, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to wash you so that you can live in my home anew and treat it the way that it should be treated. And so how in the world can God's household, the church, his people, treat others the same way? Or not treat others the same way that God himself has treated us? That's what he's saying. And he's saying, if you understand that Jesus is glorious, you will act the same way. Who is Jesus? He is the most glorious one who ever lived. Anybody ever try to look at the sun for more than a couple seconds? It hurts, doesn't it? And yet Jesus' glory is infinitely greater than a sun. And yet this glorious one, he came down to earth and he became nothing for us. He gave his life on a cross so that those of us who are far from him would be part of his family and lifted up and honored. There, there, can, there can be only one glorious one in your life. There can be only one whose opinion matters most. That's what glory means. Glory means to have the weightiest opinion. There can be only one. It's either Jesus' opinion or it's yours. If it's yours, you will treat your life as if it belongs to you. Everything that you do will be about you. Even when you do care for the poor, it will be because you look good in doing it. It will be because you're a more spiritually better off person for it. But if Jesus is the most glorious one, then you will submit yourself to him and you'll get down on your knees and you'll say, I will become the servant of all. I was really um, hit with this uh, recently because I was I was thinking about our neighborhood, um, and uh, I live in Runnymede, and it is the I've come to this conclusion it is the weirdest street in New Jersey, and New Jersey is a weird place. 
I'm not from New Jersey, and it's weird, okay? And, uh, and my street is even weirder. Because on my street, in, on my block, um, we have middle-class families. We have uh, ex-veterans. Um, people that are doing really well off. And yet just, I mean, not even 20 feet away, um, we have a 93-year-old widow, uh, a single mom with three kids who lives with her mom in all, all the same house, um, a single guy who's almost 60 and, and is not very well off, um, an ex-gang member who was recently out of prison. Um, I mean, it's just the weirdest place in the world. <laughs> it does, and it should, right? Um, and then there's you. And then there's me. <laughs> I'm the ringleader of weird, you know? One of the things I notice about myself, though, is that um, I would say as a church, we, um, we spend a reasonable amount of time talking about how we as the church should, should care for the poor when we lost, right? I mean, we, we established ministries that care for the poor, all of that. Um, one of the things I noticed, though, when, when I was spending time with my neighbors is um, one in particular who uh, is probably our poorest neighbor, um, has a whole lot of time on his hands and, and loves to be in relationship with us. Um, but when he would invite me over to his house, uh, I would feel really uncomfortable. I just would. And if he would invite me in at, at certain times when I didn't want to leave the comfort of my house, I would say no or come up with a reason why I couldn't do it. And, uh, and one time he called me out on it. He goes, you don't want to come over because you don't like the, the condition that my house is in. And I, you know, I played it off and said, no, 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 it's not it, it's late, you know. I mean, kids got to get to bed and all that. Here's what I've come to understand. He was right. He was absolutely dead on. I was showing favoritism to, if, if cause he, and here's the litmus test. If, if another neighbor who, whose house is in great condition and invited me over at the same time, I wouldn't have found it weird at all. I probably would have gone. That cut me to the heart when I started to read James. And it was a, a sense to me where God was saying, you who claim to care for the poor need to inspect your own heart and see whether or not you really believe this Jesus who you claim to love. Because this is what he did for you. I would ask you to do a heart check on your own lives too and see whether or not uh, those relationships are forming that bring together classes and races of people because you really do believe that everyone is the same before the cross. I picture a day, and you know, mentioned that um, that that's what it should look like in terms of our block. I, I really do picture a day when the rest of Lemonade will look at our street and go, "I don't understand what is going on there." You have rich people and poor people, white people and black people, and they love each other. I mean, they they all just go into each other's houses, and nobody has any need, and they they talk to God all the time, and they. They read the Bible together and they pray for one another and they share life together and, and, and God just seems to be adding to it all, all the time. I mean, they just seem to be a, a community of abundance on that little block. All this, you know, happening. And then we would say, 
as a community of people who are becoming more and more diverse all the time, this is what happens for those who believe God and the gospel. This is what happens. Because there, there is one day coming when God will unite every class, every race, every, everyone under the name of Jesus Christ. There will be one community of faith in the world and God will glorify himself through the diversity of all the people that live as one family. See, the world does not live as one family. There may be certain people that help and take care of those who are less advantaged than them, but it doesn't mean that every social worker understands the people that they care for as their family. That's what makes the church unique. And we, always, we haven't always looked like that in the history of the church, and I would say that's the great uh, shame of us as the community of faith, and it should point us to the gospel and say we need to believe more deeply that Jesus is glorious and that we're his people, not because of what we've done, not because we've been lovely, but because Jesus is lovely and he makes us his. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just I thank you that, that you're a God who cares for all people, but particularly you delight in lifting up and and loving the poor, the marginalized, the outcast. Thank you that you show us what life should look like by your Son. And thanks that we get to be your people who do the same. I pray, Spirit, that you'd convict us in areas where we haven't shown that we believe the truth of the Gospel. And that as we behold you, as we look at you, that you'd lead us to more dependency upon you and a greater faith to treat those who should be lifted up in your name. Treat them the way that they, they should be treated as people who have been honored by the Son and, and saved by Him. Lord, I pray that you convict us of specific people and areas of our lives where we're not doing this. And that you lead us to greater belief in you so that we might do it in your name as a declaration of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.